This week on Myths and Legends, it's a story from India of sorcerers, dogs, and murder cult podcasts. We'll learn that when investigating said murder cults, maybe don't go it alone. And we'll see why you shouldn't deck your horse out in million-dollar necklaces. The creature this week is Bolster the Giant, who's not only an actual giant, but a giant sleazeball as well. This is Myths and Legends, episode 238, Blue Raja. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. This week, we're telling a story from India of magic, love, loss, and murder cult podcasts. It's set in the ancient world, roughly in the first century BC, and features a character we've seen before, Vikramaditya, from episode 183. He's a legendary Raja, a monarch, who's featured in a lot of stories, but there's not any continuity between the stories that we've told, so no need to have heard the previous one. Anyway, we'll jump into the story and learn what happens when a murder cult moves in next door. Hey, Raja Vikram, the Raja, Vikram, heard at the door. Vikram smiled and waved the person in, just like he did with all who crossed his threshold. He was a wise and welcoming king, beloved by all. Hey, so that sorcerer that moved in across the river, the person said, taking a seat. He's, well, things are getting weird. Weird. Yeah, the visitor continued. It started out by him sitting in fire, and I was like... You're kind of charging ahead here. Sitting? In fire? The Raja was puzzled. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly like it sounds. The servant clarified, while not saying anything more. He makes a giant fire and sits in it. Flames shooting up all around, engulfing and obscuring him. My issue is not really with the fire. If you want to sit in fire, hey, you do you. As long as it doesn't affect me, cool. Thing is, though, it's affecting me. The Raja asked, how so? Well, it turns out that people who can set themselves on fire without being burned, they attract attention. The sorcerer has a cult now. The Raja laughed. A cult. A cult. And things, things are not good. The Raja rung a bell for a servant to come, so he could get a second opinion on this cult, but no one arrived. Yeah, they all up and joined a cult. And that cult wanted the Raja dead, the servant said. The Raja stood. Well, now he knew what he had to do. Better get a Netflix documentary crew in here and or one of the 10,000 true crime podcasts because we're investigating a murder cult. Oh, wow, there's actually murder in this murder cult, the Raja whispered to the messenger when the pair was crouched outside the sorcerer's tent. When he didn't get a response, he turned to see the messenger fleeing back down the river. 
The Raja shrugged. Huh. Too much murder, he guessed. It wasn't really the quantity of the murder so much as the type. It was dark stuff because inside the tent, a man sat on a corpse. The corpse of his son. He said he hated the Raja so much that he had killed his son with the idea that the sorcerer would bring him back as a monster so he could have his revenge. The Raja recognized the man as one of his ministers. A mid-level guy, not in on the important meetings, but not a servant. Huh, weird. Well, there were a ton of people in there who wanted him dead, and a magical sorcerer ready to do some manner of necromancy. Should he run? Nah. He crouched maybe a little lower, but kept watching. The sorcerer started his incantation, and it rose to a full-throated yell with the fire and color and sparks shooting up all around them. He was really dialing up the showmanship, and then he looked down at the corpse that was still a corpse. The minister asked, uh, what was going on? The sorcerer looked around with a sneer. There was an intruder in their midst. That's why the magic wasn't working. The Raja looked behind him. Intruder? Who could it be? Oh, wait. Yeah, this was a good time to go. He dipped down to slink away, but found himself stuck to the ground, completely rooted to the spot. Uh-oh. Whoever is eavesdropping, things are about to get rough for you, the sorcerer said with a wry grin. He turned to his cult members, because the sorcerer was going to turn the intruder into a dog. Oh, that's necessary context. He was turning the intruder into a dog. So yeah, rough, like, like a dog says. The cult members looked at the sorcerer. Oh, yeah, got it. Good one, boss. The sorcerer smiled as the dog was dragged to him by the scruff of his neck. <laughs> yeah, it was a good one. The astrologer who had been summoned to the city rushed into the palace. The reports around the kingdom said that his Raja was ill and bedridden. He was here with his two sons. What could they do to help? He approached the bed and it was empty and made. Yeah, we, we don't know where he is, one of the advisors said. The others nodded. They tried everything. They tried sending people out in secret. They tried asking around. No one knew what happened to the Raja. They were just about to fight it out to determine who would succeed him. But then someone said they should call an astrologer before ruthlessly backstabbing each other to see who would take power. They agreed. And so that's why the astrologer and his sons were here. The astrologer thanked them for thinking of him nodded to his kids, and the trio got to work. A few hours later, they emerged. This was bad, real bad. As everyone knew, the Raja was something of a low-level magician himself, and he had trapped four spirits, and they protected him. They could aid him against low-level magic that he might come up against. The thing was, this wasn't low-level magic. The astrologer found Raja Vikram, he was with the sorcerer who lived in a tent down by the river. The Raja's saving grace was that the sorcerer didn't wait to transform him into a dog until after he looked at the Raja. He had no idea that the object of his hate was completely in his power. The advisors said, okay, well, they should just raise an army to go there, grab the dog and kill the sorcerer. The astrologer shook his head. Maybe a couple weeks ago, but the sorcerer's power had only grown since. There was an invisible boundary that spanned out from his camp 
and went halfway across the river. If they sent an army, well, that was a nice way to lose an army. They had mere days, until the sorcerer's power would be greater than the Raja's spirits. Once that happened, the sorcerer would know who he had, and the whole kingdom would be at risk. Well then, what should they do? The advisors asked, and then asked how two deer had gotten in the Raja's bedroom. The astrologer pointed to the deer. Those, those were his sons. They had turned themselves into deer. He turned to the boys. The kingdom could not fall. They all had to do their part. You see, the Raja was himself, but not himself. He was a dog, and as a dog, he was loyal to the sorcerer. Given that the Raja was a mindless animal, the sorcerer didn't even see a need to tether him up. So the dog sat in the murder cult tent, keeping guard. Like my actual dog whenever she sees a deer in the backyard, the Raja would take off after the intruder. That was the plan here. The brothers, the sons of the astrologer, would wade into the river, trying to draw the dog out. Though, beware, even though they only needed to get the Raja halfway across the river, the reverse was also the case. As soon as the brothers were on the sorcerer's side of the river, they were in the sorcerer's domain. The sons understood the risk, and they bravely pranced off toward the river. The dog spotted the deer, its ears pricked up, and it took off. The spirits that protected the Raja knew what was happening before the sorcerer, and they kicked up a sandstorm between the dog and the tent to obscure the Raja. It worked up until the dog splashed into the river. Hearing the water, the sorcerer glanced over, saw the dog was gone, and instantly transformed into a kite, a bird of prey, not a kite. Though he could do a kite, wouldn't make much sense though. He flapped from the tent and flew into the air and saw that a deer was trying to lure the dog across the river across the invisible boundary that stood as the temporary limit to the sorcerer's power. The dog was almost there. The sorcerer panicked and dove for the face of the closest deer. There was a shout from the astrologer on the other side of the riverbank, a warning for his son, but it was too late. The kite came away with one of the deer's eyes. The bird of prey cried out in victory, but it was premature. The Raja crossed the threshold of the sorcerer's power. He was free. The two deer followed, and though the sorcerer was growing in power, he didn't dare cross out of his domain, lest he fall into a trap that the astrologer had waiting for him. He hovered just inside the boundary, gulping down the deer's eye, before flapping back to his hut. When the sorcerer was gone, the astrologer and the deer took off, and the dog followed, nipping at them. Soon, they were home. The Raja had been rescued, but a powerful new threat had been discovered. The Raja stroked his beard as he addressed the astrologer. So, evil sorcerer, not his first rodeo here, can you magic him to death or... The Raja asked. He turned to one of the astrologer's sons who was now wearing an eye patch. Sorry about the eye, kid. I guess it was kind of his fault. Who knew investigating a murder cult solo could be so dangerous? He turned back to the astrologer. Sorry, he wasn't paying attention. What was that about destroying the sorcerer and solving all of this for him before dinner? 
the astrologer said that he couldn't. That got Vikram's attention. He couldn't. Why not? The astrologer said that he couldn't do it for the same reason that he couldn't deadlift 500 pounds or open a pickle jar with wet hands. It was too difficult for him. Worse, the spirits that guarded the Raja would soon be overpowered by the sorcerer and his followers. The Raja wouldn't even be safe in his own home. But there was someone who could help. Nice. Who is he? The Raja said, daring to breathe after that grim exposition drop. She, the astrologer replied. The Princess of China. She was the only one within 5,000 miles who would be able to stand up to the sorcerer. She knew 14 types of magic. If the Raja married her, she could save him. Marry her, the Raja asked. Why did he have to marry her? He was keeping his options open here. I mean, he was an ancient world king. His options were perpetually open. But couldn't he just like send a messenger to China to see if she could help? You think she's going to want to come like a quarter of the way around the globe to help a stranger? The astrologer asked. You think she's going to be cool with me actively deceiving her into marriage for this one selfish purpose? The Raja rejoined. The astrologer's answer to that was a yes. That was the plan. That was their only plan, their only hope here. And getting out of town will put enough distance between the Raja and the sorcerer to keep him safe for the time being. Vikram sighed. Fine. Just give him time to get a retinue and an entourage together and he would start off on the overland journey that, were he to fly like on a plane, would take 22 hours. The astrologer stopped the Raja from calling a meeting. Yeah, about that. He was going to have to go it alone. They couldn't risk the sorcerer infiltrating the group or knowing where the Raja was going. So the Raja put some of his most trusted advisors in charge and set off on horseback. The astrologer might not be able to fight the sorcerer, but he could give Vikram, the Raja, enough cover to get out of town without the sorcerer sensing which way he went. And so Vikram rode. For weeks and weeks, he passed over mountains, through valleys, cities, and towns. He talked to the people as he went. And every so often, he would ask who was the ruler of the land in which he traveled. And each time, the answer came back the same. Vikram. He began to appreciate the wide land and its varied people whom he ruled. But one day, the answer to that question was different. The land belonged to the emperor of China. Vikram smiled. Nice. And where was the capital city? Fifteen minutes away? Twenty? Four months later the emperor's palace rose on the horizon. Tomorrow, tomorrow he would approach, reveal himself, and court the princess. But for now, he would sleep. Since you can only carry so much gold on your person, and 10 months of travel equates to something like 300 plus nights at inns, the Raja wasn't too proud to pitch a tent and sleep by the river. This was how the thieves found him. They didn't rob him, though. They had just finished robbing someone in the city, and getting away was the name of the game at this point. This next part is confusing to me. And if I'm saying this, that means I didn't find a suitable explanation for what these guys did between the time of writing and recording. So, if anyone knows what's up with this, please let me know and I can update the post on the site. Basically, the thieves skidded to a stop in the dirt. Not when they saw the sleeping Raja, 
but when they saw his horse. The horse by the river was an auspicious sight, and so they decided to stop right then and there and divide up their spoils among each other and the horse. My guess for this was that by donating to the horse, they were making a sacrifice of sorts that would help ensure good fortune in making a speedy escape, as I found that horses can represent freedom sometimes. Anyway, they drew lots. Someone drew lots for the horse, and the horse won a necklace that, in today's dollars with a straight conversion, was worth 120,000 US dollars, and that's not even adjusted for inflation. So I guess Ocean's Eleven stumbled on the Rajah and his horse, if they could afford to drop that kind of money to help ensure a speedy getaway. Regardless, it worked out. For them. When the authorities came running, they spotted the very fancy horse and the only moderately fancy man sleeping next to him. The Rajah awoke to men binding him. He shouted at the authorities as they dragged him and led his fancy horse into the city. The investigator sat across from Vikram. He was going to ask the man one more time. Who was he and where did he get that necklace? Vikram refused. He said that it was none of the man's business who he was. And as for the necklace, they knew as much as he did. He woke up and his horse was wearing a million dollar necklace. That's not a normal day for anyone. The investigator shook his head. Well, they had this stranger dead to rights. He was found with evidence on him and he was obviously protecting his compatriots. If he didn't give some explanation as to who he was or what he was doing there, they would be forced to punish him for the crime. Now, final chance. Who are you? The Raja must have had some plan for how he was going to reveal himself to the princess when the time came, because he only sat back, shaking his head. Sorry, he wouldn't talk. The investigator gave the men behind Vikram a nod. Fine, he was guilty for the crime, and he would be punished for it. The men behind Vikram gripped his shoulders and wrenched him from the seat. Vikram turned indignant. Unhand me, the Raja yelled. The investigator grimaced. Oh, you don't know what we do to thieves, do you? We'll see what happens to the Raja, but that will be right after this. The oil man, a man who sold oil, like cooking oil, in the market, was late getting home that night. The square was basically empty, and the homes were shut up. As the merchant found his way home through the warm summer air, he stopped. There, up ahead in the road, was an animal. It was something. It was large, about the size of a man, and it was just a twitching mass. There was blood near it too, staining the stone. The merchant backed up. Something was wrong here. If it was an animal, it was hurt or sick. He had decided to give it a wide berth. When he heard something, it was weeping. Thuelman's feet pounded the stones as he rushed over. There, in torn, spit-soaked clothes, was the shaking form of Vikram. He held his arms to his chest, but the oilman could see the bloody stubs where his hands had been. 
Please, please help me, Vikram begged, but then winced when the oilman reached out. But it wasn't to hit him, as everyone that had passed him that day had done, but to pick him up. He was taking Vikram home. What are you doing with him? The oilman's wife demanded when he returned home with the Raja. Uh, kindness? Think you might want to try it sometime? The oilman asked, being distinctively unkind. The wife said that the oilman didn't get it. This man had lost his hands and his feet, and yeah, they cut off his feet too because he refused to talk. He was supposed to be out there. That was part of the punishment. If the emperor knew the oilman was giving him aid, but the oilman wasn't listening to any of that. He was holding Vikram close and stroking his spit-soaked hair, telling the Raja it was going to be all right. Everything was going to be all right. Papa! Vikram called out to the oilman. He wanted a ride, Papa! It's weird that he calls you Papa, the wife noted. You guys are like the same age. Whose special boy wants a ride in the oil press? The oilman asked. Vikram smiled. The special boy. The wife shook her head as the oilman grunted, hefting the, yeah, full-grown man atop the donkey that pulled the oil press so he could ride around the mill. Then she smelled the air. Oh, wow. Okay, um... It looked like the stranger needed a bath. You mean my son? The oilman clarified. The wife said, uh, sure, his son needed a bath. The oilman smelled Vikram. Wow, yeah, okay. Things were getting ripe. All right, into the bath. It was just about bedtime anyway. No, Vikram said, lashing out with his limbs. The oilman said he was not about to break out his dad voice tonight. It was bath time. The wife facepalmed and left the room. This was not her problem. Twenty minutes later, the oilman had Vikram in a backpack. All right, they were going out. The wife said, out? What did he mean, out? She thought it was bath time. In parenting, follow-through is extremely important, or else it sends the message that, she paused, she was not going to enable this ridiculousness. Okay, why were they going out? To the tank in the princess's summer garden, the oilman said. It was the only place that Vikram would consent to be bathed. The wife said that they would all be killed. No male ever set foot in that bath. They barely got away with sheltering a convict. Everyone thought he died or something. This was so dangerous. What my boy wants, my boy gets, the oilman said, and left. It wasn't long until they were at the princess's secret private garden, which is not all that secret or private if a random convict can piggyback ride his way on in. The oilman looked left and right. The only sounds he heard were crickets. The palace, it seemed, had turned in for a very early night. Vikram turned to the oilman, telling his papa that he could leave Vikram here to bathe and pick him up again around midnight. The man said that that was four hours from now, way too long for a bath, and after his bedtime... But Vikram was insistent. Soon, the oilman was picking his way out of the secret bath, by even more secret paths, and Vikram was rubbing soap on his body for the first time in weeks. When you're taking secret baths in forbidden tubs, 
it's really important to not just take a really long time, but to stop and sing for three hours after you do so. The thing was, the song wasn't an ordinary one. The song communicated with the spirits that protected the Raja. I guess they had been taking some time off, given his current state, but he summoned them now to light things up. Inside the palace, the princess's lamp roared to life. She woke up, blinking in the now vanquished darkness. She rushed to the window and looked to the city. Every light in the city was burning, just like hers. The people were marveling that they sparked life on their own, and the sky above them glowed. Then, the light went out. Every light went out. As bright as it had been, the city was plunged into an inky darkness. The princess smiled as she felt her way over to her divination tools and her lamp, which she relit. He was here. Vikram was here. She knew that a magician had come to the city from the west. She knew that he was staying with an oilman. And through consulting her own spirits, she had even learned his name was Vikram and that he was seeking her. But even her magic had limits. Now, he was trying to reach out to her. It must be urgent. She looked back out on the city, lights flickering to life after the darkness. There were a lot of oilmen in the city, but she thought she knew how to find him. The oil man, our oil man, stood among several dozen others before the princess. When the guards showed up at his house that morning after he and his 30-year-old boy broke into the princess's garden, he thought he was dead. He could breathe when he realized that she was summoning all the oilmen in the city, but then dread washed over him again when he realized that she was doing so to kill them. Well, not kill them immediately, but they were all as good as dead. If each family didn't supply the emperor with 8,000 pounds of oil, by tomorrow morning at 6 a.m., he and his family would be pressed to death in their own mill. Of course, this was met with lamentation. Most had some oil in reserve, but not 8,000 pounds of it. That was the point, though. To make that much oil in one day would take magic. And it was magic that she was looking for. That's how... After calling on his spirits, after the oilman and his wife fell into a restless sleep, the household woke up to jars upon jars of oil. The task was complete. The oilmen who didn't flee the city with whatever wealth they could carry scuttled before the princess, bowing low and telling her that they couldn't complete the task, and they awaited their deaths. She sat transfixed on our oilman in the back, with his jars upon jars, she looked at the others. Oh, yeah, she knew they couldn't do it. They wouldn't be killed. Just get out of here. The men said that, uh, oh, cool. So it was all a test. Glad they spent their savings and literally lived like there was no tomorrow in one night. They had to go have some awkward conversations with people they thought they'd never see again. The oilman approached and the princess held up a hand. In two months' time, she would be choosing a husband at a grand ceremony. The oilman smiled. He was flattered, but he was already married. The princess rolled her eyes. The man staying with him was invited to the ceremony. This was both an offer and an order. He was dismissed. Two months later, the city gasped 
as the princess revealed herself. She stood atop the pavilion, looking down on dozens of crowned heads. Her dress flowed as she descended, and passed all of them. She passed the men garbed in silk and gold, the sons of nobles. A sea of spectators parted, as, at last, at the back of the crowd, she came to the oilman with Vikram in a backpack. She placed the garland on Vikram's neck and heard her father, the emperor, hit the platform at the palace when he fainted. what happens with the princess and the Raja, and maybe return to the actual plot, but that, once again, will be right after this. A decision and a choice had been made, the emperor's decision to respect his daughter's choice, but, but him? The princess stroked Vikram's face with a smile. This was a kind man, a monarch that was approaching equality with her in power and intelligence, which was more than she could say for the other men assembled. Yes, him. The oilman was excited for his boy. His son was going to marry the princess. Then he paused. Oh no. His son was going to marry the princess, and he had to help pay for the wedding. Seriously, don't do anything, I'll be fine, Vikram begged the oilman. Papa, please. The oilman took a deep breath. Okay, sure. He trusted his son. Vikram smiled. Good. Oh, and one more thing. Tonight, could he get a ride to his girlfriend's house? Sitting once again in the princess's secret bath, Vikram told the oilman that he was good to go this time. But this time, he could leave for the night. Vikram would be fine now. The oilman was about to ask if his adopted son was sure, but he could tell by the look in Vikram's eyes. The man was going to be okay. Oh, and Papa, Vikram said, as the oilman ducked a crawl under the portion of the wall that Vikram would absolutely have repaired the moment he was prince in this kingdom, the oilman turned back. Thank you for your kindness, Vikram said with a smile. When the oilman was gone, Vikram settled into the bath and began his song. Once again, the spirits that he controlled flickered the lights in the city, but he stopped them before they left. He said that, long ago, he had captured them from the air and forced them to do his will. He was grateful for that, but tonight they would be freed. He only had one more thing to ask of them. When the spirits were gone on their final task, Vikram resumed washing himself, but he was startled by another spirit. A giant, celestial maiden, as the story says, appeared in front of him. He didn't know it, but it was his betrothed. When the lights flickered this time, the princess used her magic to find him immediately. She said that she could grant a wish of his, and he held up his arms. It wasn't a big deal, but he would probably prefer to have hands and feet again. 
If you're thinking that a magical woman who can turn into a celestial being would also regrow hands and feet, as I thought, well, we'd all be wrong about that. Because she didn't regrow the hands. She, I, I guess her dad, still had them. Because she presented the man's severed hands and feet, likely in a horrifying state of decay, and reattached them. The Raja flexed his zombie hands when he heard the horns blow outside the city. He thanked the celestial being and rose from the bath. He had to go. His friends were here. Meanwhile, in the middle of the night, the oilman was roused from sleep. He woke up in his home, but he looked around. This is not my beautiful house. He turned to the woman next to him. Oh, that, that is his beautiful wife. He felt the soft silk sheets and looked up to the carved art and gold embossed everything around him. His feet felt the cool marble as he walked out of the bedroom that had been the size of his house. Countless servants met him as he walked outside and viewed his now spacious manor with piles of gold inside. He thought about his son and smiled. Hi, we surrender, the emperor of China said to the army arrayed outside his gate. He didn't know who was there or why, but he did know that he didn't want to deal with any of that. So yeah, preemptive surrender. He just hoped his new overlords were merciful, but you know, if they weren't, unconditional surrender, just don't kill him. Dad, come on, he heard from the other army. He squinted and, hey, was that guy? It was that guy, Vikram, his son-in-law to be. What was he doing here, conquering them on this, the day of his daughter's wedding? Vikram smiled. He wasn't conquering them, just bringing his army here to surround the emperor's city for reasons? Not quite sure. But they were here now. And so was the party. You see, he didn't just bring an army, but entertainers too. They combined the two parties for one fantastic gala, and the princess and Vikram were married. The couple sat on a raised dais watching the dancers below. When the Raja got word that a troop of jugglers had a special performance just for him, uh, he grinned, yeah, put them on next, juggling ruled. Well, after the dancers finished and the jugglers took the stage, Vikram froze. Oh no. There, in the middle of the troop, were the sorcerer and the disgruntled minister that had killed his son for the sorcerer. He turned to his new wife, um, so... He actually forgot about the main plot here and he needed to catch her up on a lot quickly. You see, there was this guy who was out to kill him and at first he was marrying her for that, but then it grew into so much more and, but his wife put her finger to his lips. It was okay. She had this. He should just enjoy the show. For a juggling act, they did a surprisingly scant amount of juggling. In fact, the story doesn't mention any juggling. It does mention, however, a corpse. The sorcerer took a seat on something in a box, and soon, when the sorcerer started to rise, it became apparent that that something was a someone, the adult son of the minister that had been killed. The crowd clapped, thinking that all of this was part of the act, and once the corpse was clear of the box, the sorcerer shot off in the air, like he was riding a morbid flying carpet. He vanished into the sky, and initiated the very worst type of fireworks show, 
There was an explosion above, and parts of the body dropped among the screaming, panicked crowd. In a flash, the sorcerer appeared again on stage. He pointed to Vikram. Now, dear Raja, I will assemble this man and bring him to life again. He raised his arms, and the body parts flew from the crowd, reassembling themselves, until the corpse stood in the center. A cultist rushed him some ashes from one of the fires. He sprinkled it on the corpse, and it gasped to undeath. The Raja clapped. His wife looked at him. Seriously? What? She told him to enjoy the show, and that was legitimately impressive. But the show wasn't done. The young man turned to his dad, the one who had killed him for this. His eyes were filled with panic and rage. I'm, I'm hungry, father, the young man said. The sorcerer smiled, raising his hand, palm up again. Then go, change into a tiger, and eat your enemy, he boomed. The corpse collapsed into a writhing mass on the ground. Fur poked from his skin, and his hands and feet exploded into claws. His head dropped face down on the ground, and then exploded upward in a roar. The sorcerer pointed to Vikram. There was the tiger's quarry, his enemy. Kill and eat. The tiger turned to face Vikram, but didn't move. The sorcerer pointed again. Right there. But the tiger didn't move. Right up there. Go get him. Kill and eat. Eat your enemy. Oh. He will eat his enemy, the sorcerer heard from the dais. It was the princess who was now standing. It was at that moment that the sorcerer realized just how overmatched he was by the princess's power. The tiger looked to her. She nodded. Well, do what the man said. Eat your enemy. The tiger obeyed and turned to face his father. The man held up his hands. Hey, son, look, no hard feelings. It wasn't personal. He was just passed over for a promotion. And the tiger lunged and did as it had been told. He ate his true enemy. When he was finished, the crowd gave it space as the tiger rushed from the city. The sorcerer, too, turned to run, but found himself rooted to the spot. The princess walked down and soon looked up at the man who clenched his fists to hide the shaking and the sweat. Kill me, he demanded. She smiled. No, he didn't tell her what to do. She wouldn't kill him. That was too merciful. The sorcerer's look drifted from rage to panic. She said that that was the last thing he'd say. You're still in there, the princess informed the sorcerer. And he always would be. He would forever be behind his own eyes, but his exterior was like that of an animal. And he was a human, but his mind was like that of an animal. He would ride along with himself. But she told him not to worry. He would always be safe. In fact, he would never die. He would be forced to wander this earth like an animal, forever, a constant prisoner of himself, wherever he went. The sorcerer, now acting like a dog, went over and sniffed the corpse. He ran along the crowd, each of them backing up. But then one started shoving the man and the others joined in. The sorcerer shifted back in fear from the people before bolting from the city, the crowd parting around him. 
he was never to be seen again. The people, who stood with rapt attention after the corpse firework exploded over the crowd and then cleaned them all up, erupted in applause. Oh my gosh, that show was amazing. The special effects, the drama. Wow, when are the actors that played the tiger, sorcerer, and minister going to return to take a bow? Oh, and the makeup on the guy who was mauled by his tiger son? Super convincing. Best reception ever. The princess took her seat next to the Raja, and the pair, with the princess watching over them, lived happily ever after. I mean, until Raja Vikram got in more trouble. We'll see him again. And I'll probably start knitting together a loose continuity for him now. He's a pretty fun character. If you'd like to support the show, for less than the price of a Victorian T-Rex bust candle, a candle of a T-Rex bust in dignified Victorian garb, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of the show that, sadly, are not a pretty epic fancy T-Rex bust that you can also set on fire. Though, I guess any bust is flammable if you try hard enough. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this time is Bolster the Giant from Cornwall in Great Britain. Now, Bolster is the worst. Not literally the worst. I mean, we have talked about Zeus on this podcast, but Bolster is a wholly unpleasant, sleazy dude, which is made all the worse by him being miles tall and super strong. Like most giants of his time, he had several brave knights come from all over the land to smite him and such. But unlike a lot of the tales... All the knights died. When a guy has a six-mile-long stride, kind of hard to take him down with a lance. When Bolster got done scraping knights off his big toe, he would go home to his wife and continue to be evil. You see, Bolster was married, but he was also pretty cruel. So whenever he wanted to torment his wife, he would have her fill up her apron and take the rocks up to St. Agnes's Beacon on a nearby hill. While she was doing compulsory, grueling labor, Bolster decided that he might cheat on her a little bit, or try to. Enter St. Agnes, an actual saint. If, like me, you're not familiar with the saints, St. Agnes is the patron saint of virgins, girls, and chastity. So, suffice to say, she was not into it. And, if saints are capable of it, I would imagine pretty annoyed by his constant harassment. She tried to dissuade him, tried to make it clear that it was a hard no on her part, but the miles-tall giant wasn't having any of it. Remember, he wasn't the worst, but he was close. So finally, she relented. She said that she would go against everything she was by striking up a relationship with him. But to show his devotion to her, he needed to do a bit of a sacrifice. She led him to a small hole on a cliff face, saying that if he filled up that hole with blood, she would be his mistress. Bolster inspected the hole. Oh my gosh, no problem. He was a giant and the hole was tiny. He opened a small wound on his arm and got to work. After a little while, the giant began to feel woozy. Before he realized that he had been tricked, he was lying face down, dead. The hole in the cliff face might look shallow, but he didn't see the outlet at the bottom, the crack that flowed 
directly into the sea. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>